Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. And in this podcast series, we'll be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's all about what to do when managing risk matters most. Now, in this edition, which we've called Toolbox for Resilience, I'm going to be interviewing someone I greatly admire and who's given me some sage counsel over the years, and that's Dr. Rachel Morris. Rachel is based in the UK and she's a GP by trade, but she now works as an executive coach and trainer. And she's also the host of the popular You Are Not A Frog podcast, in which she shares life hacks for busy professionals so they can beat burnout and work happier. This podcast has been featured in the Apple Top 100 UK business chart. Rachel knows what it's like to feel overwhelmed and one crisis away from not coping. And she believes that you don't need to dramatically change your career to thrive in your nine to five, or let's be honest, eight to eight. And there are some simple things that you can do and changes that you can make, which are just gonna make a huge amount of difference. So Rachel now specializes in resilience in the workplace for doctors and other professionals in high stress jobs. And she created the Shapes Toolkit Resilience Training Program, which helps people to make the most of their one wild and precious life. So Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. That's fantastic. Um, thank you for having me. Thanks. Oh, I was really excited to work with you again, actually. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to listen to them, I did some work with Rachel. Gosh, it would be 12 months ago now. Something like that, I think. <laughs> um, for Rachel's podcast series, You Are Not a Frog, and it was related to how practitioners felt or are made to feel as a consequence of a complaint. So if that's something that you're interested in, you can link to it through Rachel's podcast channel or through our webpage. It's on there under podcasts. But I really enjoyed the conversations that we had. So I wanted to take the opportunity to um, spend some time with you again, dedicated a little bit more to what our podcast listeners are most interested in, I guess, as well as complaints. So I wanted to start off by asking you, Rachel, could you tell me a little bit about your journey so far? Because it's my understanding you're a GP by background. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a GP by background um, and I've always worked in medical education as well as general practice. Uh, when I was teaching at Cambridge University, I was asked to set up the doctor as a professional course, which is all those other skills that we need when we're practicing, not just the, the, the clinical diagnostic skills, but all the skills around teamwork, resilience, leadership, all those sorts of things. That got me really interested in the professional behavior of of clever people working in high stress jobs. So I started to explore that, trained as a, an executive coach and a team coach, and then started going to organizations, training for wellbeing, training, doing training for resilience. And very soon I sort of came across these concepts that I, I wish I'd known 20 years ago when I had first qualified as a doctor. They were so, so helpful to me now, but I really could have done with them back then when I was really struggling. So I put those together to form a, a sort of a resilience course which focuses on every facet of resilience because I realised actually it's not enough to talk to people about well-being. Most people, most professionals know what to do, but the problem is having the time and the headspace to get there and most people are so overwhelmed at the moment. So yeah, that was my, that's a very, very brief synopsis of my journey. So I now uh, exclusively work um, 
helping doctors, dentists, healthcare professionals, people in high-stress jobs beat burnout and work happier. And uh, my aim is, <laughs> quite a lofty aim, but to save the NHS just one person at a time. Oh, gosh, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I used to work under the NHS. It's something I've spoken about before, and um, I didn't thrive in that environment. It wasn't a very good fit for me as a dentist. Things have changed now with the way the NHS is managed. And I haven't worked under the new system for dentists, so I can't comment on it. But as a FIFA item system, I was just running to stand still constantly. And it wasn't a good fit for me, I have to say. Um, you mentioned um, about how smart people or intelligent people in high stress jobs. Do intelligent people behave differently then, do you think? I think they do. I think the main thing is that intelligent uh, professionals who are used to being able to do anything are used to being able to turn their hand to whatever position they are put into. So you've got to do this, okay, you quickly read up about it, you do it, you've got to do this, right, you'll do it. And I guess it's the case in many industries, but many people are promoted because of their technical abilities, because of their seniority, because they're, they're good at what they do. But when you become more senior in in healthcare, what happens is you then have to start managing a team, you then have to start dealing with management, you then have to start using quite different skills such as negotiation and you know increasing your influence and impact and quite frankly we're not taught how to do that and I think a lot of intelligent people assume that because they're clever they know how to do that and then what happens is they apply all the old tools that they used to have which is if I have a challenge I just work harder and harder and harder and I will I will solve it so we then apply that to our new roles and the problem is at the moment and I don't know what it's like where you work but in the UK, people cannot work any harder. No, they are that's not really No, they're at maximum capacity. And then you run out of tools. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> no, I like that. I Yeah, I completely understand how, how um, that would be the way that we'd approach things. Do you also think perhaps that one issue that we may have is also we don't have any tools for failure? Because one thing that we've seen uh echoed quite heavily in Australia is that many of our young graduates are incredibly intelligent, incredibly highly skilled individuals who have always just been top of their field. And the first time they experience failure is actually when something goes wrong during their treatment of a patient. And because it's not a new, sorry, because it is a new experience to them, that skill set isn't necessarily there on how to cope. Is that something you found? Definitely, definitely. And this is what the, the podcast series that we did together was about, wasn't it, Annalene? Because, yeah. yeah, when I went to medical school, I'd failed one thing in my life. And that was my driving test when I actually drove into a van. <laughs> <laughs> I was devastated about that. And I went through med school, managed not to fail any exams. And then, yeah, the problem is in healthcare, failure can actually mean significant harm to a patient. So it feels it feels absolutely awful but then we hold ourselves to these high 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 standards which are actually impossible to meet I, I think the ability to embrace failure is absolutely vital to practicing professionally and actually practicing safely as a healthcare professional you, know, you will never get everything right all the time it's about how do you fail safely and how do you pick yourself up when you do fail because because sometimes as well 
there is no right or wrong answer. You just have to try stuff to see what works. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, <laughs> trying lots of different treatments. No, I'm no, talking I didn't about think you maybe that. <laughs> <laughs> trying a different way of working or trying a different way of, of leading your team or a different way of having conversations or even having those conversations. What, what a lot of people are absolutely petrified of is upsetting people. And so they don't have the conversations that they need to have within their teams because for them, upsetting people would feel like failure and people don't quite know how to handle that. Or, or having criticism from somebody feels mm. like failure. But, you know, you, you talk to any of the business leaders, you read any of the books, and, and failure is absolutely inherent in our developing our professional practice. You know, people say, oh, I failed my way to success. You know, unless you try something and realise what doesn't work, then how do you know what does work but obviously this is risky and it's difficult when it comes to patients so you have to choose which bits you're happy to fail in <laughs> right and which bits actually absolutely you, you can't but then I guess and this is your bread and butter isn't it and I mean there are some times that we do fail and it is really high stakes and it just feels awful oh, absolutely and then we absolutely beat ourselves up about it like we're the worst person in the world like it's a like it's a character flaw and it isn't, it's just, it's part of being a human being and be able to deal with that in a healthy, resilient way when it happens is really, really important. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, I failed my driving test as well. And I gave a presentation <laughs> in New Zealand last month at their dental conference on human error. And I used that example and everyone in the room laughed and they thought I was joking. I was like, wow, isn't that interesting? It was so extraordinary to them that people could fail their driving tests. And I was like, nope, no, it, it's a thing that happens to normal human people. <laughs> it's all good. Um, regarding COVID then, moving away from failure a little, I'm really interested to know what you're seeing because obviously I know what I'm seeing. Do you think we can take it as read that COVID's increased pressure on practitioners? Yes. I think, well, I don't know what you're seeing where you are, but in the UK, in general practice, we've seen patient demand increase by about 20%, which is is crazy. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I don't quite know the reason for the patient demand in increasing. It may be that people are calling up for more trivial matters. We do know that actually lots of people who didn't see their uh, their GP during COVID or didn't manage to get their hospital appointments now have quite advanced illness that possibly would have been treated earlier if they had sought medical help during COVID. And there was a time in the UK where you actually couldn't see mm -hmm. people face to face mm -hmm. really unless they were acutely unwell. And so um, the reports I'm getting from secondary care and that there's been quite a lot of uh, illnesses presenting at a much later time. So I think it's a combination of Patients being a bit scared now about their health, um, pe people being genuinely much iller they were before, both with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a tsunami of mental health issues, particularly in our younger generation, mm -hmm. and also illnesses presenting later. And also, I think people have quite unrealistic expectations of what their their doctors can, can actually do, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. We're certainly seeing um, an increase in mental health issues. We're seeing an increase within our own membership of people contacting the counselling service, which is fantastic because it means people are reaching out and talking, which is exactly what we would, of course, encourage people to do. Um, our complaints profile has remained reasonably static, but fewer patients have been treated. So 
the same number of complaints have been made to the regulator as has been made in the two years preceding COVID. But it would be reasonable then, as many fewer patients were treated, to think that, in fact, there's more complaints. Does that make sense? Because there's fewer patients being seen, but the same number of complaints arising, which implies more patients who receive treatment are complaining. So we are seeing that increase in the complaints and also the nature and type of the complaints that we're dealing with, where even though we talk about burnout as being an occupational phenomenon by definition, we're seeing that our patients perhaps are burnt out too, like this I know it's not the correct term to use in the strict definition, but we're seeing this. There's been so much uncertainty and people are just exhausted at the moment by the uncertainty. So with dental treatment not being when I say an exact science, the human body is a biological environment. You never really know. We've got a good idea what's going to happen, but we never truly know. And sometimes we do just have to take a chance. And sometimes treatments have a failure rate. And previously, patients have been accepting of that. But we're finding more and more people just that intolerance of that, sorry, that lack of certainty just isn't, it just isn't viable for them right now. And they're much quicker to complain or to become dissatisfied than they've ever been before. And of course, we've got practitioners who were already preloaded because of the stresses that COVID's put on businesses and continues to put on businesses. Because many private practitioners in Australia are business owners or work for a business. So with things like limited patient flow, it's, it's, it's been an issue. It's been a big issue. There's been cost flows and staffing issues and staffing issues are continuing. You can just imagine, can't you? I mean, we still every day, we never know who's going to turn up, including our staff. It's a huge issue, this. I think you've hit the nail on the head that you've got patients who are stressed, who are worried. And now you've got the cost of living crisis as well. And in the UK, we're being affected by energy. Um, energy prices are massive. Yeah, it's we're on the way here. about mm-hmm. We're worried about the war in the Ukraine. You know, everything seems to be conspiring. And then, you know, after COVID, well, say after COVID, we are still in the middle of COVID, mm-hmm. but doctors were getting very upset in the UK about the angst and the criticism we were getting from the general public and the particularly from the media. I and mean, the media have been awful. They have, they have no idea what, what's going on, what's no. really going on. We have a, a shortage of of doctors, a shortage of dentists, and then the public get cross when they get when they can't get appointments or they get cross when they can't be seen in the way that they want to be seen. Yeah, now, yeah. The, the problem is everybody's on a short fuse. So the, the doctors and dentists that are left are overwhelmed. The patients are scared and worried and are expecting not to get what they want. And then people are surprised that people are complaining. People are surprised that they're getting criticism. Whereas I'm just sort of saying, well, look what's just happened to people. Mm-hmm. Looks what's just happened to people for two years they were locked down many people lost their businesses lots mm-hmm. of people have been made redundant the whole way that we live and we work has changed mm-hmm. as a result and then you're surprised that people are critical and are complaining that's just that's just almost normal human behavior absolutely that is people's inner chimps coming out people are reacting people are telling themselves all sorts of stories in their heads um but the problem is when the healthcare professionals start to then react in a similar way, rather than reacting and saying, it's not fair, they shouldn't be saying that, you know, can't they see the stress they're under? Probably we just need to sit back and go, of course they're reacting like mm-hmm. that. Look what, mm-hmm. they've, look what they've been through. And it, it's not right and it's not certainly not fair 
but actually we can only control our own behavior we can't control their behavior so getting really cross and upset about the way that they're acting doesn't help us it just adds to our own stress how can we do what we can do stay in our I talk about the zone of power which is the things that we can control how can we support each other make it better for each other so that we can continue to practice in this really really difficult environment right now does that make is any that sense? Something, no, it does. It's fantastic. Is that something that you can expand on then? So using the example of having an angry or upset patient, what sort of things can I control as a practitioner then? Yeah, so, so this is all based on, on one of our shapes, which is one of the principles that, that I discovered in my coaching training that I <laughs> wish I'd made when I was a junior doctor, honestly. This, it's, it's all around control and getting really clear on what you can control and what you can't control. The simplest way to do this is get a piece of paper and draw a circle in the middle. And within the circle is everything you can control and outside the circle is everything that you can't control. So if you think about an upset patient who hasn't been able to access care when they wanted to and maybe some, some harm has occurred, um, what's out of our control is the COVID pandemic, you know, the government regulations, the restrictions that are on us, the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the availability of PPE was, was dreadful in our country. Oh, we country. had shockers too. We had the bushfires. Did you see that on the news, the bushfires oh, over yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. And so the the PPE was being used in the bushfires as well to protect people. Mm. And um, I mean, we had a, extraordinary PPE issues very early on. Mm. So that, you know, that is, is, out, is out of your control, essentially. Um, What's going on with the patient outside your control? You know, what's happening in their mouth outside your control? What they choose to, how they choose to look after themselves outside your control? Their health-seeking behaviour, health, hang on, their health, help-seeking behaviour. <laughs> Can't even remember the word for anyway, That's out of your control. Your colleagues, out of your control. <laughs> what the media says, out of your control. How you're paid and reimbursed, out of your control. I mean, it, put like this, it's quite depressing because actually... Most stuff is outside your control. My circle's really small, Rachel. Just listening to you talk, my circle's really small and my page is quite big. There's a lot of stuff outside of my control. There is, although, although it's interesting because all that stuff is outside your control and it does make your circle feel quite small. I do think healthcare professionals have control issues. The first control issue is they're trying to take too much control over the things they have no control over. So as soon as you start to take control over how the patient looks after themselves Mm -hmm. or the way they seek help or even what they say to you or whether they complain or not, you're going to get really, really stressed because Mm -hmm. you can't control it. You absolutely can't. The only thing you can do is to accept it and go, that's happened. That is happening. Okay, I can't do anything about that. You have to accept that. Now, the other control issues healthcare professionals have is that they don't take enough control of the things that they do have control over so if you go to this circle now and think actually what do I have control over well I have control over maybe the the way that our practice advertises how to get in touch with us we have control over if you are the business owner you have control over your appointment system and how you offer appointments and how you triage things you have control over when you choose to work, the hours you choose to work, what you choose to say yes to, what you choose to say no to. You have control over how you respond to situations. Now, no, I didn't say how you react to situations because (laughs) most of us (laughs) 
can react pretty badly to, you know, if you were to say something horrible to me, I probably would react immediately. I don't want to, but um, Professor Steve Peters calls this your inner chimp. And this is mm -hmm. your amygdala fight, flight or freeze response, which comes out immediately. And that's designed to protect you, keep you safe. And unfortunately, that immediate reaction happens five times faster than your rational yeah. thinking response. So um, that's why it's called your inner chimp. And that does just come out. And it's very difficult to control that initial reaction, although there are, you know, taking a pause and taking a break before you allow that chimp to really throw lots of bananas everywhere can be very helpful. But then we are in charge of, once we have calmed down a bit, thinking about how we will then respond to that, what we will say, what we will do, the conversations that we will have. You know, how I look after myself is in my zone of power, what exercise I take, what I feed myself, you know, how I, when I decide to go to sleep. Now, you might have young children, you might have toddlers, in which case often that your sleep can be very disturbed, that can be out of your zone of power. But, but largely, a lot of the, 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 the well-being stuff is in your zone of power. Even when you leave the practice, when you stop working, is in your zone of power. Now, this is where it gets really, really controversial, because whenever I talk about this on workshops and webinars, I get people going, ah, oh, that is not in my zone of power. I cannot control when I leave. So I say, well, okay, who does control when you leave? Um, well, the patients, the receptionist. I said, well, who controls when you stand up and get into the car? Well, I guess that's me, but I can't leave. I can't leave on time. Well, why can't you leave on time? Well, because I can't leave patients that are unseen. I can't really leave test results that need actioning. And the, the, I'm afraid the answer there is you could do. But what you're saying is you don't want the consequences mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of, of, of choosing that. We always have a choice. We always have a choice about what we do. But we often don't have A, the choices that we want, and B, we don't like the consequences mm -hmm. of, of those choices. Now, I always say to people, work out what the consequences of your choice might be. Because if the consequences of your choice are serious patient harm, then you would choose to do something else. Of course you would. You know, yeah. we always will put the, the patient's safety above everything else. But often the reason people aren't doing stuff is because, oh, I might upset someone or they might think badly of me. It might inconvenience someone. In which case we might need to just live with that. I go, actually, I am choosing to leave at this time so that I can get home, see my family and get to bed at a decent hour and be fit and ready to practice tomorrow. So I think that we, and this again is another, it's another whole topic. Actually, our problem is that we are not taking the choices that we could take because we are frightened of the consequences and the pushback that we get. And interestingly, when I, when I talk to doctors about this, Annalene, I always say, what, why do you find it hard to say no? Why do you find it hard to make these difficult choices? And I did a poll in one of my webinars and the poll was, the, answer, the question was, why do we find it hard to say no? And the answers, the possible answers were, A, it would cause severe patient harm. Mm -hmm. B, I don't want to upset anybody. C, I don't want people to think badly of me. Or D, another option. How many people do you think chose A, because it will cause patient harm? Very few, because they probably weren't in those situations at 5 or 5.30 or 6 o'clock where harm was going to occur. Yeah, 3%. <laughs> 3%. So actually, 
The reason why we're not setting the boundaries and taking those choices that are going to keep us resilient, not burnt out and well, is, is mainly worry about what other people think. There was a great piece of study um, or research over here in New Zealand called Superheroes Don't Take Sick Leave. And they had a look at doctors and their um, uh, levels of absenteeism and presenteeism. Because as you would know, Rachel, but um, just for the benefit of those people listening, in many professions, burnout is indicated or reflected in absenteeism because people will work avoid, they will distance themselves from work because it's what's hurting them. But in healthcare providers, uh, levels of burnout are often supported by what we call presenteeism because people just keep on turning up, they just keep on coming. And there's been some quite interesting show work showing that uh, hospital environments where the practitioners take very few days of sick leave have higher levels of adverse outcomes and error than when the doctors do take care of themselves and take this particular piece of work I'm referring to, they asked the practitioners why they didn't take time off. And they found this really strong correlation, female practitioners saying they didn't take time away when they felt sick, to be clear, when they felt ill, they still went to work, because they felt that they would let the team down if they didn't. And for male practitioners, it was very much about loss of face and being seen to somehow be weak or um, inadequate if they took time away because they were sick. But that I think it's quite tying in with what you're saying about the reasons that people are not stepping away aren't necessarily your gut reactions. Well, gosh, I can't leave my patients. You know, when you were saying about saying no, I mean, I was smiling because I was thinking if I had a dollar for every time I said no, I'd be really poor. But <laughs> actually... The reasons are often not to do with as you think it's going to be the acute things, but actually it's often much deeper than that, isn't it? And, and nobody minds staying extra to sort out that acute patient to, to, to keep people safe. Of course we don't. We're, we're professionals, right? That that That's what we do. It's our bread and butter. It's our bread and butter. The problem is, is when we don't recognise when we're tired, when we're stressed, and like you said, Annalene, there's a stat, that um, doctors with high levels of burnout have a 63% greater chance of making a medical error. Yeah. I think it's really dangerous to stay on when you're tired because you're in a, your chimp will come out quicker. You're mm -hmm. probably more likely to have communication problems, arguments, be mm -hmm. snappy with patients. And I don't know what it's like in dentistry, but I do remember hearing a statistic from the complaints um, you know, department saying actually a lot of complaints are about communication rather oh, than absolutely. actually that you've done the wrong thing mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so you're not going to communicate as well so you're much more likely to get complaint even if medically you're okay you haven't made an error if you've just been a bit snappy with a patient or had a difficult tone which the tighter you you are the more burnt out you are you're likely to be that and also burnout one of the hallmarks of burnout is a lack of empathy you get this absolutely. sort of empathetic burnout patients can sense that they really can. And so if you're not being as empathetic as you normally would, that will probably trigger their inner chimp and they'll start to make complaints. So we we mistakenly carry on when we shouldn't. And I'm not just talking about going off sick when we shouldn't, when we need to go off sick. We don't do that when we should, but it's just working too long mm -hmm. when we need to go home and have all, or not even have a break. We think, oh, I'll push on because that patient's waiting. So I'll just push on without having a cup of tea or, mm -hmm. or refueling. Mm -hmm. And you're much, much like more likely to make a bad decision or have a lack of empathy or have a communication issue and or your inner chimp just come out and cause havoc and get a complaint. But we just don't recognise that in ourselves, unfortunately.
Yeah, we don't. And I think we forget that we can't pour from an empty cup. Totally. So I know that you know this, Rachel, from our previous discussions, but I have a particular interest in the area of burnout. And it's something that I talk about a lot, both in presentations and podcasts, and I write about a lot. And I've been quite interested to see how the pandemic has impacted on levels of burnout. But what I found somewhat to my alarm when I started to read around it was some, I guess, not unexpected things, because I guess they would be expected but I found them to be quite confronting. So my search around how practitioners were feeling during the pandemic or through the pandemic landscape is that practitioners have been experiencing or are still experiencing three primary emotions, those being grief, anger, and fear. Um, Grief for what they'd lost, for not being able to see their families, for their loved ones. You know, we've all seen those awful stories of people who've died alone, people who've given birth without support, people who've been denied contact with their loved ones, anger at the loss of control, um, and sometimes anger at other people and some of the decisions that they're making that might not align with your values. And then for healthcare workers, fear, fear of becoming sick of spreading an illness but also I think very much that fear and I know this is something I worried about terribly because my parents live with me fear of picking something up at practice and bringing it home and making them really really sick now with the work that you're doing with practitioners are you finding that those are the three or were the three have things changed now do you think yeah I I definitely think those those were the case and there's still a lot of grief around. There's still a lot of anger around. Mm. I would say in the UK, there's probably less fear at the moment because we've all had so many vaccinations and COVID seems to be milder than it was. Although I know that we could have another outbreak, another wave of a more severe variant. Mm-hmm. So speaking for my, for myself, there is less fear now of picking it up, bringing it home. We're sort of living with it. And we were having this conversation earlier, weren't mm, we? Absolutely. We were sort of just sort of living with it a lot more. So there's the, I think there's a less fear of um, contamination and bringing it home and infecting our, our families, although that was huge, huge, It was huge, huge at the start, you know, wasn't it? At the start. What we are seeing is huge amounts of issues now because I think... COVID has changed the way that we work, even in healthcare. um, You know, the general population, most people now work at home for at least a couple of days a week. And so businesses, they're really trying to bring people back in, but they're they're struggling to bring people back in because, you know, people have got used to being at home. It's nice to be able to, you know, walk the dog at lunchtime and stuff like that. And also on top of your laundry. Exactly. But you also (laughs) tend to get more work done because you don't have those distractions. However, what people are not realising is the importance of connection Mm -hmm. and those informal interactions. And and this has really affected healthcare because what I see is happening is that even though people are going in now and working, a lot of the meetings are still online because people have realised that, oh, actually, you know what? That consultant meeting that we have where we try and get 20 people, the 20 consults in our department together, we might as well do that online because it's so difficult to get everybody together in one place which is all well and good, but some people have said to me they literally haven't seen another colleague face-to-face for two years. And it is alarming because we forget how important 
those informal interactions of, oh, how are you doing? Or even in a meeting, you know, if someone says something a bit controversial, you can maybe pull a face or your body language can indicate that maybe something might, might not be wrong and then you can might not be right. And then you catch up with them afterwards and go, oh, sorry, when I said that, I wasn't meaning this. I noticed, are you OK? So you can have those little checking in with each other, mm-hmm. which we're just not getting. And so that's really, really difficult for teamwork. And I mean, I have just noticed that the quality of conversations that you can have face to face or in a group are are completely different online versus face to face. So I think there is that loss of connection. And let's face it, the connection with our colleagues is mm-hmm. pretty much what, what makes life worth living and work, work worth doing. Also, the connection with patients and, and many of us are. A lot of um, doctors are seeing patients online now. There's lots more video consultations, phone consultations, which mm-hmm. I know in dentistry is a bit, bit tricky. To do. <laughs> bit <laughs> we tricky. do, but for some disciplines, yeah. but a bit tricky. Yeah, bit tricky. So you're so so people are missing out on those. You know, actually seeing the patients, which can be really nice. I mean, it, it's actually really helpful to be able to have pivoted to video and phone now because actually that does help a little bit with the workload. But there are other problems because the other problem I've seen is that, you know, in general practice, for example, you would have a list of patients at a certain time and then you'd have, well, if you were a good practice, you would have a tea break blocked off where you would go into the common room. (laughs) That wouldn't happen in dentistry necessarily. Public, yes, Uh, they do have that factored in for the staff, but often the practitioners wouldn't get that break. And private practice, we encourage people to do that. But I'm not going to lie, Rachel, it's not even something I I do for myself. Oh, you know what, Annaline? Try it for a month. Get your colleagues to put in a half hour coffee break. And and Can I you know see how stressed I look. <laughs> I, okay, try it for a month and just come back and you tell me how that worked. Because okay. you know what? People need to pee. They need to get a cup of tea <laughs> and a little bit of human connection, plus the fact, okay, bit of neuroscience for you. When you are in focus mode, uh, your brain is very linear. That's what you've been in when you're looking at someone's, you know, you're focusing on that. You are in deep concentration. You can't maintain that forever, forever. And when you have a break, when you're just making a cup of tea, looking out the window, your brain goes into its default mode where what mm-hmm. happens, it starts connecting across the two hemispheres and you can access the more creative part of your brain. That happens very subconsciously. But that is where you solve problems. So if you've got a tricky problem, you're not quite sure what to do, or you've been thinking about stuff and you've just been in focus mode, if you carry on in focus mode, you're not going to find the solution. Whereas you ha- if you have a break, nine times out of 10, you'll get back to your room and go, oh, I've just thought of the, the solution mm-hmm. there. If you have a break, it will increase your productivity. I guarantee you will not lose any time off your surgery. You will probably get faster. So I and, and you will enjoy being at work more. You will connect with your colleagues. You'll be able to ask some questions about those tricky things you're thinking about. So anyone who's listening to this, I suggest try it for a month get a few colleagues on board and then just see what happens. Honestly, this, this is really is my soapbox. About no, this is, no, this is great. I mean, and I love the fact that's a really simple thing. I'm a great believer that we give all this amazing advice, but we never actually give people tomorrow, try, pick, these are five things. And this is something I want to come on to when we finish off speaking. You know, these are five things. Pick one or yeah. pick two and try that in your practice tomorrow. I, I understand what you're saying about the linear brain, brain, though. I have to be honest. It's a bit of a joke with my dental protection colleagues. I do my best work when I'm not paying attention. So no, when totally. I appear not to be paying attention, which, you know, or daydreaming or, you know, making a cup of tea, whatever, that's when I come up with my most, I don't know, profound thoughts, shall we say. Yeah. 
Yeah. In the shower, right? <laughs> yeah. In Absolutely. the shower. Driving. Well, we are, of yeah. course we are paying attention when we're driving, but when you're driving that regular route and yeah, you're... Yeah, no, your brain, yeah. your brain can go. I mean, yeah, you, 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 you're you focusing on that, but your, your brain is... It's very subconscious. That's why sleep is very important as well. Sleep is not just to rest. It is also so your brain gets a chance to move stuff from your prefrontal cortex into your longer-term memory, and it will make connections and solve problems. So if you've got an issue sleep on it you'll probably be you'll probably know the answer the next day um, it's interesting I'm, I'm learning to ice skate at the moment so um, I am seeing firsthand how you learn when you are not doing it so I'll, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. struggle with like something like a free turn which is trying to turn on one foot and go backwards I can't Gosh. do that at the moment but I know that next week when I go back to the rink I'll be much much better even though I haven't done anything all week just because my brain will have processed those movements very interesting the neuroscience is totally fascinating but sort of back to the breaks thing now in general practice often gps are just phoning patients so they're not having those breaks because they haven't got like set they haven't got set time so i've noticed that's a a real problem and then you've got the um the, the problems are just just overwhelmed just too much to do and then everyone going off sick with burnout which then is a vicious circle for the mm-hmm. for the people that are there and people not being able to to say no to stuff. And I think it's not just an individual level, but it's at a practice level as well. Or a, we have things called PCNs, which are bunches of practices. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. all these things from the government coming, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. But some of it is a choice. You don't have to do everything. You can choose on to take, you can choose to take extended services on or, or different things for which you will be financially reimbursed. And I don't think people are really stopping to go, what is our one priority right now? Mm-hmm. And I think they are maybe prioritizing the money and the income over their own mental health and, and mm-hmm. the resilience of their teams. And sometimes we just have to do less. And, you know, there's, again, another whole topic, time management. But I really, really think the only way to beat this overwhelm is not get more efficient to try and cram more in, but it's actually to do to do fewer things, but better. Yeah. And efficiencies come from that, of course. By doing fewer things better. That's something that we see in dentistry. Seeing more patients doesn't necessarily lead to increased uh, efficiency and it doesn't necessarily lead to increased income, interestingly. Seeing fewer patients and being more effective is a terrible word, but having like better appointments with those patients, not rushing, having more time to do what they need, perhaps being able to do more uh, meaningfully for that patient actually will, will be better for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we see this in general practice. You know, if, if you have longer appointments, patients come back less. It's actually cost mm-hmm. and time effective. Because mm-hmm. you're doing, when I say doing more, yeah, I know what you mean in general practice. They're getting the opportunity to get everything off their chest and that you're not necessarily getting those door hanger questions that we all love as practitioners, just as the oh, patients yeah, the, walking out on the, the way door. out. About that chest pain I had last week, doctor. Oh, okay. <laughs> come and sit down. Come back in. Right. <laughs> yeah. lovely, Let's just lovely. deal with that one, shall we? Probably should have started mm. with that one, shouldn't we? Yeah. Hey, there we go. Yeah. So, but, you know, people are nervous and sometimes they do that. So, Rachel, we mentioned talking about burnout, and it's something that we've spoken about quite a bit to our colleagues in the past. So many of our colleagues have got some idea of some of the ways that burnout makes us feel and that it affects us across all our systems, cognitively, emotionally, behaviorally, physically. And uh, but obviously we're all individuals, so we'll all have different signs of burnout. So um, I always I'm very honest. My sign of burnout is actually procrastination. I'm quite a high energy person. And when I lose that spring in my step 
and I don't want to I look at a piece of work and it just feels too big just feels too big for Annaline today maybe it's tomorrow Annaline's problem that for me and of course it's okay sometimes to actually you know have a quieter day but when it's becoming a pattern of behavior that's a sure tell for me what's you mentioned um depersonalization are there any tells that you think practitioners should really really be looking out for which could be perhaps more broadly applied that many people would show i think when you're getting to the point where you're dreading going to work that is a very very good sign that you are heading towards burnout mm-hmm. um, when you find you're becoming very very cynical about now this is quite difficult to phrase I think cynical about your patients probably because (laughs) it's quite easy at the moment in the UK to be a bit cynical about the government and everything that's going on I think that's probably much change normal but actually much change over there yeah so much and you know it's it's not good but it's when you get cynical about your patients and your colleagues that's that that's when that's when your sort of loss of empathy and you know I found myself just not caring about people as much mm-hmm. you know someone would sit down you know when I when I was very stressed and heading towards burnout you know they'd sit down and, and say you know maybe a new depression or mental health problem and rather than in my head thinking oh you know what can I do to help I think oh gosh this is going to take 20 minutes and I'm, I'm really late you know mm-hmm. that sort of that sort of thoughts that I mean everyone thinks that a little bit but that shouldn't be your primary thought. It shouldn't right? be your prevailing thought. An equivalent in dentistry would be when that patient comes in for a checkup and they've broken a tooth or they've got toothache and you don't have time for both things. So you know that you can do both things and you can run late or you can just pick one and get the patient back, which is obviously inconvenient to them. But Sometimes you'll have to do that. Sometimes you will just get on and do both things. But your prevailing sense when a patient comes in and presents with a problem shouldn't be that sense of existential dread. And how am I going to get through this? And almost like, how how could you? How could you bring this problem to me today? So that, yeah. So I do. I hear you. I hear you with that. Yeah. So we start blaming people. I've, I've got a brilliant story about this. So one of my colleagues who's on the podcast described this, and I think it's a really great example of burnout. So she was a GP, really very burnt out, went to pick her daughter up from nursery. And the nursery teacher came to her and said, I'm really sorry, um, Mrs. So-and-so, but actually your daughter has been bitten on the nose by another child. And she said her first thought was not, oh, dear, how are you, my darling? Her first thought was, oh, Another thing I've got to sort out. Yeah, I don't have time for this. Yeah, I don't have time for this. I don't have time and I think when this. we find that towards our patients, but also towards our colleagues, our children. <laughs> and our children, you know, and I think when we start to feel that lack of empathy, you know, when we talk about people, doctors, um, healthcare professionals not going off sick, and part of the problem is we're worried about what our colleagues will think of us. And part of the problem is, yeah, because our colleagues are actually quite horrible when we go off sick. And I have, have to seen pick up that work because they have to pick up the work. And so they're like, oh, yeah, off sick again. I mean, you know, they'll be supportive on the surface. But you've heard the snidey remarks that people make to other people when people's not in again. And, you know, well, mm-hmm. we've been, you know, left with it again. And, you know, it, it's just I guess it's fairly natural because you're feeling the stress yourself. And it's like, well, how come they should be off and I can't be mm-hmm. off type thing. But mm-hmm. until we really support each, start supporting each other and going, you know what, you, if you need to take time off, 
please don't don't come in because I don't want a burnt out doctor working here. Um, and you know what? We'll have to start saying no to some of these patients uh, rather than taking it all on board. And I've got to, I've got to, I've got to do all mm-hmm. your work. Is actually, mm-hmm. no, we then... We then we then put some boundaries in, and as a practice, we start to cancel things and say, "I'm really sorry, but this is this has happened." Um, it's hard, though. It's really, 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 really hard. No, it is definitely. So we've got two steps then that we can try tomorrow. Our first step was you suggested. I even laughed, smiled, just saying it. Then you suggested that we consider taking tea breaks. I'll put. No, I will. <gasps> I will. I do have cups of tea during the day, but then normally I make them and then I see a patient and then I come back and like slurp them down, tepid and um, unpleasant, probably. So trying to schedule in some breaks for a period of time, you suggested a month and seeing how that affects us, our how we feel, um, how it affects on our patient interactions, how it affects on our staff and how they feel. And it would actually also be interesting, I think, for practitioners in private practice to see how it affects your bottom line. And if it does affect your bottom line and if so, how? Because I wonder if regular breaks would actually prove it wouldn't affect it negatively affect your bottom line, if you see what I mean, because you would feel better in yourself. So I think that would be an interesting exercise for anyone. So and the second step that you just suggested then was to try and just to paraphrase you, uh, Rachel, to try and create a culture where if people have sick leave, we support our colleagues in being unwell, as in if Annaline can't come to work today, that's OK. And let's be honest. If COVID has taught us nothing, has it not taught us to not go to work sick? Has it not taught us that? So those are two things that we can try. What are the simple steps? If I wanted to go and try some things tomorrow, and what other simple steps could I put in place tomorrow? I think the first one would be doing that zone of power exercise. So as soon as you start to feel stuck or frustrated with the situation, Get yourself a piece of paper, draw a circle and write everything that's outside your zone of power outside, then everything that's in your zone of power inside. And once you've done that, ask yourself, what else could I do? And write a few more things that are in your zone of power, because you might start to find you're coming up with quite creative solutions and then have courage and try and do a few of those things. So do a zone of power. I think many of us, have got things the wrong way around when it comes to life and work. And I heard uh, someone saying on a podcast the other day, most of us are having a career and then trying to design our life around it. (laughs) Whereas it should be the other way around. We should have a life and design our career around it. Gosh, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. What a paradigm shift. Yeah, most of us have not taken the time to think, what do I want my life to look like interesting when I first started doing a bit of a career shift and getting into all of this stuff I went on a sort of business retreat where one of the guys running this business retreat sat me down and said right Rachel I know you're starting off doing all of this so let's let's have a quick impromptu coaching session and I thought he was going to go what are your goals what are your vision blah 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 and he said right (laughs) how do you want to live your life I was like oh he said because there's no point designing a business uh, or or an organisation or or whatever that consumes your life so you're miserable. Design your life. And so we've got a really simple tool that people can download if they want to called the Thrive Week Planner. And all you have to do is get a sheet of A4, and we've got some charts for this. It's it's a a week. It's a week, you know, Monday to Sunday, Mm -hmm. three sessions a day, morning, afternoon, evening. So, you know, divide into seven columns, 
and then three rows. And you just write down currently what you are doing with that week, where you're working, include all that extra admin that you have to do that might be out of your normal working hours, include when you keep yourself well, the meetings you have to go to, all the extra stuff you have to do, and then just look at it. Um, it was interesting. I did this with a with a chap once. He was a partner. He had he was working three days as a partner, but we all know that three days as a partner is probably more like four days once you've yeah, got the extra admin absolutely. and CPD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was also an appraiser. He had a, a day of work at, uh, as a clinical assistant somewhere else. He he was running a project for the CCG, and when he and he said to me, "I just want to have a day off, Rachel. I want to get to my day off." So. We mapped this out. We mapped out what he was doing. And I said to him, well, what do you notice? He said, hmm, I appear to be working 13 sessions a week. No, yeah. no wonder. No wonder I don't get a day off. Yeah. And then the next step is to take the, exactly the same diagram and map out how you would like your life to look, how mm-hmm. you want, you know, when do you want to work? When do you want to rest? When do you want to see friends and family? When do you want to go for a run, look after yourself? And you will soon see there's a big difference between those two two things, your ideal week and the week you're currently living. And then the question is, what what needs to change? Yeah, and what awesome. could you do? It's, it's very powerful visualization. And often people need to drop one or two roles because I don't know what it's like in dentistry, but in, in medicine, we can just, as we get more senior, we just acquire lots of different roles. Like you might be lead for clinical governance or this, you might do a session of this or be on that committee. Um, and it's all good. And I'm all for diversifying and crafting your career, which again, is another podcast if you want to talk about that. Um, <clears throat> but the problem is we acquire these things and then we forget to drop some. So, mm-hmm. you know, each that time you acquire a new role, you don't say, oh, well, in that case, I'll drop chairing that committee. You just say, mm-hmm. well, I can do it at the same time. And then what happens is we get people who are doing things, as one of my colleagues says, off the side of their desk in a lunch hour. Mm-hmm. So, well, not that everyone, anyone actually ever gets a lunch hour, no. but you're trying to do that project while you're trying to do your letters just before you have to go to surgery again. And so you're constantly overwhelmed by too much. And um, I just say do fewer things, but better focus on the things that are in your zone of genius. And your zone of genius is things that you are really good at and that you enjoy doing. And if it's not in your zone of genius, give it to someone else because it'll be in their zone of genius. Imagine that. Totally. That's a great way of looking at things. I'm going to have a crack at that uh, Thrive Weekly Planner. My colleague, Kieran Keshwara, was talking to me about a book he's read called 4,000 Weeks. I've just I've downloaded it, haven't read it yet, which is just like that would be if you wanted, you know, my epitaph will be downloaded it, haven't read it yet, because I read a lot, but I tend to read between things. So I travel a lot for my job. So I do a lot of reading then and I read at night um, when I can, but I don't necessarily read new things at night. I know that might sound like a strange thing to say. I'll often read comfortable, familiar things in order for that to be soothing. Um, in because obviously I don't want to start getting really excited about a new concept at half past ten at night. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I only read fiction at night. Yeah. And it can't be upsetting fiction. It has to be, I think I'm reading some sort of vampire wizard absolutely. trilogy or something. Yeah, it's totally. Brilliant. It has to be rubbish because, yeah, absolutely. Totally. I get too excited by the new. I'm like, oh, what an interesting idea. But that book, 4,000 Weeks, rocked my world. And it is the one book I'm recommending to everybody because it is a real, well, it's not anti productivity because actually Oliver Berkman is, I think he's the Times or the Guardian productivity guru. <laughs> That he's realized in all this research into productivity and how to do more in the time that we've got, he's just realized we can't. 
Yeah. We literally can't. And there's one line in the book which I sort of have on a slide with all my talks. It's, and I'll, I'll remember it wrongly, but it's something like, it cannot be the case that we are expected to do more in the time that we've got than the time that it takes. We cannot yeah. fit more time into the time we've got. If you've got an hour and you've got, you know that each patient is going to take 15 minutes, you can't see six patients in an hour. Like that is not logical. <laughs> so we've got to stop asking people to do stuff that is not actually logical. You can't yeah. actually do it. And what the problem is when healthcare professionals can't do the impossible, they beat themselves up and go, what's wrong with me? But that's kind of failure. The wrong, the, we go back to being yeah, a failure. I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. Completely the wrong question to be asking. So it's really, really good. It's talking about actually we need to embrace the fact we can only do a few things in this life and in this world. And we've got to embrace JOMO, which is the joy of missing out, not the fear of missing oh, out. Oh, yeah. Cause... I love a bit of JOMO, I have to say. Mm. I'm very into a bit of JOMO. I'm quite happy yeah. to miss out on things to do if I'm like, and I want to do something I love with my yeah. discretionary time. Then I'm all it's hard though because uh, I love lots of things so people are like do you want to do this I'm like yeah that'd be cool not thinking actually do I really want to do that so again that the, the biggest thing I can suggest to people is to to press the pause button and probably this will be another another one of the, the hot tips is the pause button is your friend if you can just press pause every time you feel that inner chimp coming out <laughs> you know someone's been rude to you someone's been over demanding there's a difficult email just press the pause go and have a cup of tea sleep on it overnight go for a walk do not react immediately if someone asks you to do something say can I check my diary can I get back, get back to, you? to you that pause mm. button is your friend because then you can consider something in the calm light of day not not through your inner chimp that wants to please, because we don't mm -hmm. want it to upset people, that no. is fearful of what might happen in the future, is worried that um, we might come to harm or, or people won't like us, you know. Wait till that chimp has chimped itself out <laughs> <laughs> and you can just consider it, it rationally. Mm. It My chimp so loves much. juggling. My chimp loves juggling oh, whilst riding on a unicycle, balls. balancing something on its nose. It's ridiculous. Okay, so we've got four things so far then. We've got taking a tea break for productivity, being kind and having a culture where it's acceptable to be ill. We've got our Thrive Weekly Planner. One thing that Kieran suggested to me was even instead of, I think that sometimes we can all have a habit of thinking, if I can just get through this, if I can just get to, once this is done, and so this concept of what's this week going to bring and what can I achieve this week? So instead of trying to push through weeks and saying, if I can just get through, actually thinking what positive thing can happen this week? And I could say, I haven't read the book yet, but Kieran recommended it. And he said that to me. And I actually have that written funnily enough on my desk. I've written um, on a piece of paper next to me. What will this week bring and what will we achieve? And so I thought that was quite, I, I had a quite a difficult start to today, Rachel, for a whole number of reasons. Um, I had some IT issues, it's school holidays. So I have two actual chimpanzees at home because that's what my children become uh, whenever they're not around other people. Uh, my parents are poorly at the moment. So there's a few things going on and I had a lot of things. And so my chimp was going off its rocker this morning and it was actually really good for me when I sat down at my desk and um you know the IT person remotes on and you see all these things whizzing around on your screen and so I that I was just letting that happen and I looked down at my desk and I saw what will this week bring <laughs> chaos Annalene this week will bring chaos okay 
what will we achieve? I thought, interesting, because if I consider it under both of those, you can look at the first one and go, what will it bring? It will bring chaos or it will bring drama or it will bring trauma. It will bring challenge. How about we reframe it as a challenge rather than chaos? Maybe I should try that. But then what will we achieve? Well, that's a whole different question, isn't it? So I like this week concept. I'm definitely going to have a look at this weekly planner. And then pause. You said pressing the pause button. So what in so in that moment, if I can step away, taking a moment to go and put my brain in idle with a walk or something shorter. So that's something that you'd recommend I do or that we do. Definitely. But there's something else that you can do once you've got that pause. So first of all, take the pause to let your chimp settle down, get yourself back from your fight, flight or freeze sympathetic response into your Mm -hmm. parasympathetic Mm -hmm. um, mode, which, you know, some some simple breathing exercises can help Mm -hmm. um, just taking a walk. Then what you can do is to ask yourself, what's the story in my head about this? Because often the story is, they shouldn't do that. It's not fair. I ought to. I should. I'm a terrible human being. Why can't I do this? Blah, blah. All this ridiculous stuff. And actually, if you write that down, and we were doing this with a load of people the other day, they start to write down those stories in their heads. And once they read them back, they went, oh, my gosh. No no wonder I'm stressed. See what I'm telling myself. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. That's What a nightmare. You know, I'm a bad doctor because I can't do 50 things in one consultation or I'm you know we even tell ourselves that I'm a bad GP because I can't solve that patient's social situation I mean it talk about being outside your zone of power you know um and then what you can do and again I mean this is another whole day of workshops and things like that but you can just think to yourself what's true here what is true you know actually I'm trying my best in difficult mm. circumstances. I'm a compassionate doctor. I really care about my patients. You know, I'm doing my best. Everybody fails sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then the thing I love is this power language where you say, I am choosing to go home on time or mm-hmm. take a break so that I'm choosing to so that I'm choosing to take a tea break so that I can replenish, rejuvenate, connect with colleagues and be a better dentist yeah, and you awesome. suddenly you've shifted from that i should i ought i'm a dreadful person too mm-hmm. i'm choosing to i'm choosing to so that and that is power language and it and it will help you help you keep your long-term perspective you know i'm choosing to go home on time today so that i can be in this for the long haul no As that's a practice, great we, we are choosing not to do this so that we can serve our patients better there it's really good i mean it works in all sorts of situations no, it does it does. That's fantastic. I have to say, when you said your coach asked you, what would you like your life to look like? Or what would you like your day? And the first thing I thought was regular snacks. And I thought, there you go. Said, I am choosing to have regular have snacks. Regular snacks. <laughs> that was the so that I am not a monster by lunchtime, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. So, Rachel, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice or a few pieces of sage advice, knowing what you know now and knowing how much you probably, as I think we all did when we were young practitioners, flagellated yourself, doubtless, for things that you could, couldn't could do that you thought you ought to be able to do, or however that contextualizes for you. What would you tell yourself? Oh, my word, that is such a good question. I think I would tell myself, you are a human being. <laughs> you have limits. Mm. So those are physical limits, like sleeping, needing to eat and pee 
but you also have emotional limits. And unless you guard those limits, you'll be miserable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's you won't true. practice very well and you'll you'll burn yourself out. I, I think I would, oh gosh, I think the story in your head thing it, it is a big one about, you know, actually the shoulds and the oughts have been present with me a lot of my life. Mm. And now I'm starting to go, why, why should I? Mm. Why ought I? It's quite freeing, actually. It's great when you can get there, but getting there is hard. And I tell you, when you're oh. a younger practitioner, you, under, you just feel like they've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, don't you? Yeah. And I would say, get some help. Oh, get some yeah, help. for sure. I remember being thoroughly miserable. And it wasn't until I got some coaching. In, you know, and that was only like five or six years ago. It wasn't, you know, whereas I struggled as a mum of three children, trying to do it all, trying to do everything. I, I didn't ever go and access any any counselling or any therapy. Somebody could just sit me down and be and challenge me back with some of this stuff. So mm. if you're struggling, or even if you're thinking, oh, uh, maybe something's not right, then go see a coach, go see a counsellor. It's so so helpful it really really is yeah it's always good to talk so yeah. Rachel before we go then you've mentioned some things which I know that many people listening won't have heard of before our um our circle our power circle our zone of genius what we can and can't control and I know that you have a shapes toolbox could you just take a few moments just explaining this because I know that there are going to be people listening who are thinking I want to know more about what this lady does Yes, yeah, so the, the Shapes Toolkit is these series of um, amazingly helpful coaching, productivity, resilience tools I learned when I did my coaching training. Those mm -hmm. ones that I said I wish I'd known 20 years ago. And they consist of things like the zone of power that we've already mm -hmm. talked about. Um, the in the corner shape is about that chimp response where we're backed into the corner and how you change the story in your head. Mm -hmm. We've also got a shape called the vortex of busyness about how when we work harder and harder, we give up doing all that stuff that actually replenishes us and then we get to burn out. We've got um, a productivity grid, which is all about how do we actually prioritize our work? Because unless we start to prioritize and focus on what's really important, mm -hmm. then we spend all our time just firefighting the urgent. We've also got the drama triangle in that, which lots of people will be familiar with, where we get into the rescuer role. And we try and rescue the mm -hmm. victim and then there's the persecutor. And then what happens is when we can't rescue anymore, we then feel like we're the victim and we just end up moving around the triangle. So mm -hmm. it's like, how mm -hmm. do we get out of that role? And actually, rather than being a rescuer, be much more coach in terms of supporting our colleagues and our patients and things like that. So one of our shapes is, is a coaching pentagon to help have a simple model of, of conversations. We've got another shape around the different causes of stress at work because there are things that you can do. And particularly if you're a leader, you can also help your team with. Um, and is there any more? I think that's that's mostly there. Like I said, there's there's seven shapes. Um, and it, the, the toolkit is really good for individual resilience, but it also works for leaders. So lots of people are leaders, whether they like it or not, I think, mm -hmm. in, in healthcare. Mm -hmm. You're either uh, supporting your um, your team of allied health professionals or you're supervising more junior practitioners or you might be a clinical director or something like that. And and so this toolkit gives you some conversational tools for you to have with your team as well so that you can uh, 
actually help them with, 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 with resilience. So if people want to find out more, then just contact me. We actually do have an, an e-learning course as well called Beat Stress and Thrive for Healthcare. Mm -hmm. So if people want to have a look at that, that goes through the Shapes Toolkit and gives sort of six hours of CPD for that. But I'll give you lots of links that you can put in the, the show notes if that's okay. That would be amazing, Rachel. Thank you, because I know that people are going to want to have some access to these really helpful resources. Thank you so much, Rachel, for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you all for listening. Thanks so much for having me, Annalyn. It's been a complete pleasure chatting with you. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.